It's great to hear these testimonies of behind the reasons that songs and hymns are so important to us. And you're absolutely right, John. It's great to have memories where you can just know you were born into a Christian family and you've got that. It's fascinating. When we served in Northern Ireland, one of the first things, because they've got what's called the Bible Belt in Northern Ireland, one of the first things a lot of Northern Irish Christians always ask us is, what's your birthday? And you think, that's a bit impertinent, asking my birthday. And they weren't referring to your physical birthday. They wanted to know your spiritual birthday. And it's very hard if you grew up in a Christian family to actually have a real... I mean, I came to know the Lord actually in a boys' brigade camp at the age of 10, but that was a point in the journey, and that journey began a long, long time before my, I was ten and a half. The important thing is actually knowing that you know the Lord, and that's, that's, that was a wonderful reminder of that. Well, we're turning to Genesis chapter 25. I hope you're enjoying our series in Genesis. We've been at Genesis for over a year, and I think one of the reasons it's really important to deal with certain books like the book of Genesis is it lays the foundations for the Gospels and for the, our understanding of the whole of the Bible. So much of Paul's teaching, for example, is based upon what comes out and the morality and the ethics of Genesis. It's a really important foundation, and I think we do ourselves a disservice as Christians in the 21st century by not taking the, 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 New Testament, the, sorry, the Old Testament seriously enough. I had a conversation with someone very recently who asked the question, why do we as Christians even need to look at the Old Testament? Well, it's because the Old Testament was the Bible that the early Christians had. And to understand the theology of the New Testament, you've got to understand the Old Testament. It's a bit like an iceberg. You know, the, it's, the tip is, is the New Testament. Undergirding the New Testament is the massive foundations of the, the iceberg itself. So we're reading from Genesis chapter 25 and from the New International Version. Here it's written, This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethilu, the Aramean of Padam Aram, and the sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the elder will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out, with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was sixty years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. But his why he is also called Edom. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear it to me first. 
So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. May God bless to us now that reading of his word. Thank you. When I was thinking of this originally, um, I had the title, The Terrible Twins, because that's what it seems to be. But then it began to occur to me that this may be a better title for this sermon, Two Babies and Not Enough Womb. Genesis 25. This passage is one of these great passages, and I really believe 2 Timothy 3.16, which is why we taught the children one of the memory verses, that all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is there for our edification. Fiona and I are reading through the Bible. We've been reading through the Bible a chapter a day for a long, long time now. We're now in the it tormented towards the end of Ezekiel. And it's the, it's, it's the one book that's really challenged that point of view. Because uh, Ezekiel's writing to the, uh, to the, um, the believers living in Babylon. And, um, and so I've just been going through the dimensions for the, the sanctuary. Um, and trust me, it's the first time I've begun to think, what am I possibly going to get out of this for the, to encourage me for this day? But it's been wonderful just reading through the Old, Old Testament because there's so many beautiful passages that you just don't see when you don't take the Old Testament seriously. But this whole passage is dealing with the struggles of life. And if you're a person who experiences the struggles of life, then Genesis chapter 25 is very much a passage for you. You see, the first patriarchal family have died. Abraham and Sarah have died. They're buried in the Hittite country of Mamre. They've got a cave there, a cave of Machpelah, and they've been buried in there. And Isaac's now become the head of the tribe and is taking over. And it seems that even though he's taken over the family, the same problems that, uh, that um, Abraham and Sarah had are following them because, lo and behold, Rebecca a beautiful-looking woman, a woman who's very compassionate, as we heard early on when we were looking at when, he, when she was chosen to become his wife. She, too, like Sarah, is barren. And it's not a DNA problem because she's not related to Sarah. She's, in fact, a Syrian. Another fascinating point to remember, you know, when people talk about the purity of race and the purity of the Israeli race, Rebecca came from Syria. You know, it's, there's this constant theme in the Old Testament of the fact that man is made in the image of God and all people are precious to God and the reason the people of God the Jewish people were blessed was to be a blessing and the reason God blesses us is to be a blessing it's not for us to sit in our church and say we're the holy ones and out there are the holy the great holy unwashed and to think praise ourselves of being the holy ones because the reason God blesses us is for us to be salt and light, to take that blessing into this world. And so this whole passage begins with this whole idea, how is the promise of God to continue? Because yet again, we have another barren woman. Sarah was barren, and now we're told Rebecca is barren. And this shows us, first of all, this, the struggle of life. The struggle to bear, the struggle to bring life into the world. And this is an ongoing situation for many young couples. Nowadays, we're greatly blessed by science that can aid a, um, a lack of fertility in either the male or the female. Isaac had inherited the promises of God. 
And yet he was faced with the physical challenges on the fact that Sarah was barren. But God has said to Abraham in chapter 12, I will make you into a great nation and will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Isaac knew he was the only son of both Sarah and Abraham. He knew that his father was nearly 100 years old when he was born, his mother being 90. He knew he was a great blessing and now his own wife couldn't conceive. It seemed like everything was against the promise that God had given this family. And yet he doesn't give up. Here we see a development in the patriarchal family. Because what does he do? He bears his wife in prayer. His wife is unable to bear a child. So what does he do? He bears his wife in prayer. He was frustrated, but he wasn't stopped. He was slowed, but he wasn't arrested. He knew the promise and he knew that God was faithful. You see, we don't know the answers to why we face situations that we do, but we do know our God. And that is what gives us hope. The questions of why you suffer certain things in life, you may never know, but you know that God is good and loving and gracious, and he is the one that gives us hope. If I was questioning the nature of God, I would give up. But while we may question the circumstances that we face as people and the things that we go through and things that may continue to the end of our lives, we know one thing, that God is good and God is love and he is in control. And so we find that here we find uh, Isaac bearing his wife and we're encouraged to bear other people too. We're encouraged to bear other believers to bring them to the Lord in prayer. Paul says this, he says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with each other in love. Now that's actually referring to put it up with each other. That's reading between the lines. Paul's saying, put up with your other believers. And I know that many of you have been in this church a long, long time, and I'm sure you've had to put up with each other, and you're having now to put up with me. You know, that's the reality of Christian living, because none of us are perfect. All of us may seem perfect when you first get to know us. It's like when you first go out with someone. Fiona thought I was wonderful and she's had to learn, but I'm not. Life is like that, isn't it? What's the first argument you have when you first get married? It's often not about the big issues. It's about the way you squeeze the toothpaste. It's about the silly things, isn't it? Why do you leave your slippers there? Why do your socks not reach a dirty linen basket. That's what the big argument's about when you first get to know someone. It's not about the big issues of their politics, whether they're Brexit or non-Brexit. It's about the socks. It's about turning the tap off. It's about putting the toilet seat down. Bearing with each other. And one of the great ways we can bear each other as Christian believers is to bring each other before the Lord in prayer. Fiona and I have a... um, what I call a holy habit and before we sleep every night we have a group of people we pray for people who need prayer regularly every day there are a group of people that we will say to someone we will pray for you now you know for for every day and that's the time we do it before we go to sleep we bear people in prayer before the Lord because these people are important I can't take the onus we can't deal with the political situation or the circumstances we can't do that but we can bear them in love before the Lord in prayer. It's what happens in that wonderful passage in Luke chapter 5 when we read of those men bearing the paralytic. He can't walk. 
He can't get to the source of healing to Jesus Christ. So what did his friends do? They pick up his pallet and they carry him to Jesus. And that is a picture of intercessory prayer. That is what Isaac is doing for Rebecca. He can't conceive for her. He has to bring her before the Lord in prayer. And being a bearer of another believer in prayer is a really precious role we can have as Christians. And not only bearing each other, not only bearing each other like that, but also bearing ourselves. Having that great opportunity of coming before the Lord with the problems that you face. One of the things I love about the Old Testament is the Old Testament is full of this. When, I'm on, when I've been on operations in the past, I've always made a policy of, in my Bible readings every day, I always read a psalm. Why? Because the psalms are full of complaints. When you're in a hostile environment, when you're facing death of, uh, virtually every day, when you're dealing with the pain and suffering of warfare, I don't want to read some kind of platitudes. I want to read raw Christianity. And you have raw Christianity in the psalms. You have often people beginning their prayer by saying, where are you, God? Where have you gone? Why is the cloud out there? Why is the sky so dark? And yet, because they've come to God and ventilated their frustration and their human circumstances to him, suddenly the light begins to break through. And you find their prayer turns to praise and acceptance of the situation. Bearing ourselves is also very important and what's great in this passage is you see that there's been a progress here from Sarah's reaction to being um, infertile to Rebecca's what was Sarah's reaction Sarah's reaction was to take her maid and make her a concubine for Abraham go and sleep with my my maid have a concubine I'll get my heir that way it wasn't what God had wanted it wasn't what God had promised and the consequences were disastrous. And ends up with um, Hagar being thrown out by Sarah and being in the wilderness, praying for, this, for the dying baby, Ishmael, that was in the desert with her. The Bible is full of these ideas of coming before God in prayer. Psalm 62, verse 8, Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. What a wonderful expression, pour out your hearts. That's raw, isn't it? That's not simply drip out your hearts, you know. That's, let it flow, let it out before God. God is a compassionate God. Pour out your hearts. Psalm 50, verse 15, call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honour me. You know, sometimes we can be very masculine in our treatment of prayer. A bit like a man driving a car when they're lost and won't ask for directions. And I am that man. I've had Fiona glaring at me. You know, days, be- days before we had sat-navs. You know, stop someone and ask for your question and I'll think, well, they-, they probably don't know this area better than I do anyway. And if they do, they'll probably give me some convoluted way to get in there. And so I-, I hate asking for directions if I'm in the car. And, um, and so I'd much rather go on for half an hour and get myself even more lost and more frustrated. And then perhaps... I will ask for directions. And we do that, don't we, in our prayer life. We go on a bit further. We think, no, I won't bother God yet. You know, God's too busy with other people's problems. He doesn't want to hear mine. He knows your problems, for goodness sake. He knows 
a word before it's on your, your tongue. You can't hide your problems from God. Not telling him God is not going to mean he doesn't understand your problems. He knows them already. He's just saying, come to me. Come to me. Child, tell me your problems. Pour out your heart to me. I want to know. I want to hear. The Lord is near to all who call on him. To all who call on him in truth. Oh, what a rub that is, isn't it? In other words, no lies here. None of these, are you okay? How are you today? I'm fine. When deep down you're falling apart. When deep down you are really hurting. How often we try and fool each other. But you can't fool God. God sees your heart. Call on him in truth. Don't hold back. If you're angry with God, tell him you're angry with God. Trust me, he's big enough. He's had millions, if not billions, tell tell him they're angry with him before you. Be honest in your prayers. Come before God in truth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. But the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Brokenhearted is not psychobabble of the 21st century. It's a biblical word. God knows that people get broken hearts. God knows that people get crushed spirits. And taking that broken, fragmented heart and that broken spirit to him is the best place to find healing and peace. And so we're encouraged in this passage to bear each other's problems and to bear others' problems before the Lord. So Isaac prayed before his wife. He brought his wife before the Lord, prayed to the Lord on her behalf, as she was childless. What does the Bible tell us? The Bible says this in Philippians 4 verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer. By prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. What we need to remember in this is it took 20 years to get there. It wasn't instantaneous, didn't happen straight away. We don't know when Isaac began to pray. It may have been after three or four years or perhaps even ten years. We don't know. But we do know that, that, um, the, uh, the, that she didn't fall pregnant until Isaac was 60. 20 years before Rebecca gave birth. But she did give birth. Isaac prayed to the Lord on, on behalf of his wife. Because she was childless, the Lord answered his prayer. And Rebecca, his wife, became pregnant. And not just pregnant, pregnant with two babies. What does it say in Ephesians 3 verse 20? Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power, that is a work within us. She got two for the price of one. And she was blessed. But you know what? The struggle didn't stop. For next we find it wasn't a struggle for life. It was the struggle of life that bothered her. Because we find in verse 22, the babies jostled each other within her. And he, she said, why is this happening to me? And so she went to inquire of the Lord. Isn't that the question of life? Why is this happening to me? How many times have you heard that 
people saying that. How many times have you felt it for yourself? God, why is this happening to me? It, it's in the Bible. It's not new to life. It's a question that we face because our circumstances don't always follow our desires and our dreams or what seems to be right and just. And we can bring that prayer to God as Rebecca brings that prayer to God because God is there for Rebecca. And so we find the Lord speaks to her. She says, why is this happening to me? And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two people from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the elder will serve the younger. Her prayer for children have been answered but those children bring more problems. And those of you who are parents know that children are delightful and wonderful, especially when they're asleep, but they bring lots of issues and lots of problems and lots of challenges. And here it seems these twins were literally jostling each other. They were kicking each other in the womb. People like to joke, don't they, when babies move in the womb and say, oh, that baby's bound to be a footballer. Having one baby kicking is one thing, but having two babies kicking, seemingly kicking each other, must be incredibly painful and uncomfortable. You see, life is not easy, period. Rebecca's problems have gone full circle from worrying about life to actually being faced with the reality of life itself. You know, the wisest man in the Bible, King Solomon, writes this in the book of Ecclesiastes. So I hated life, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Later on says this, he says, This is what I observe to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labour under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. He's not exactly selling life to us, is he, right now? It gets even worse when you go later on to chapter 9. He says this, Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labour under the sun. It's one of his proverbial books, um, Ecclesiastes. And what he's doing is challenging our philosophy for life. We live in a, in, a life, in, a, in a world that tries to make life entertainment. It's all about pleasure. That's what life is. And that is not the reality of life. How can you have pleasure when you've got pain? You can mask pleasure perhaps using drugs or alcohol, using medication. But actually coming to terms with what life is like is really important. And King Solomon is saying life is difficult. It can be toilsome. It can be a struggle. But you're not struggling by yourself. Not a positive picture. But God says this in Matthew chapter 6. Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Jesus is saying, but when you worry, you don't contribute or uh, diffuse the the problems. When you worry, you merely add to the problems. You merely make it worse. Worry doesn't help. It just pushes you further under. It's a bit like trying to be a mental brain surgeon. 
And you're trying to dismantle the problems in your mind. And you're just dissecting it and taking it to pieces. And you've got all the pieces laid out in your mind, which makes you worry because there's so many pieces. And then you think, well, how do I put this back together again? And all you've done is waste your time and give yourself a bigger problem. Worry doesn't help. We just look and say, I don't know why this is happening to me, but I do know you, Father, and I know that I can trust you. This is what Jesus encourages us in chapter 16 of John when he says this, I've told you these things so that that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This life isn't perfect as we're not perfect. We will struggle in this life. There will be challenges and problems for us to overcome. But the one thing is, is this. We're not in this world by ourselves. And Jesus has overcome the world. I don't know how many of you watched the game yesterday. It was a great game. And I was really thrilled uh, that South Africa won. They played so well. And as John was praying earlier on, um, you know, it's been part of the uniting of that nation through sport that the Springboks have played a great role in that nation. So, you know, you, you've got a situation there of, of where sport is, is, is playing this very, very positive um, thing. But I struggled in the first part of that game. I was sitting there not enjoying any of it because I wanted England to win so much. And they were playing against a team that was so much better than them. And I'm so pleased they couldn't hear the commentary because the commentary kept them referring to this strong green wall, the Springboks, that they couldn't break. And they couldn't break it. They tried. They threw themselves against this wall. And time and time and time again, they were thrown back. They couldn't overcome the Springboks. And so they lost the game. But the game and the struggle we're involved in, we have a victor already. He has overcome. The cross on which he was crucified was also his victor's podium. That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians. He has conquered sin and death. He is already victorious. What we're waiting for is the day that he picks up the cup. And when Jesus Christ picks up the cup and holds it above his head, you and I will be with him in that crowd and we will be cheering because we are on the winning side. What a day that will be. The celebrations in Johannesburg yesterday were wonderful to watch. Watching people embracing, people who didn't know each other, embracing other people. On that day, we'll be with our loved ones, like Rosemary was saying. And we'll be embracing people we haven't seen for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And we'll be celebrating that Jesus has won, not the World Cup, but the universal struggle for mankind, but we struggle still now. And what's happening in this whole situation is Rebecca is also in the womb. She is growing as a believer. She has been challenged by these struggles to grow in her faith, to become a stronger person. And that's sometimes what happens through challenges and struggles. It helps to make us better people. It helps us make us who we are. There's a wonderful book by a, a, a Christian priest called Henry Nguyen called The Wounded Healer. And the premise of the book is this, is that he can minister out of his wounds. For those wounds he's received have enabled him to become a stronger person. So when he counsels and pastors other people, he does it from his pain because he has experienced that. It's how his God is past his heart. 
And so Rebecca too is in that womb. She is being grown by the struggle she faces. And so finally we see in this passage, not just the struggle of life, but the struggle in life. Because we find this struggle is essentially between two men of very different personalities. And how often have we struggled with someone who's not like us? Isn't that the problem in our marriages? When we face someone who's opposite to us, and opposites attract. Very rarely do people who are so totally the same become get married because it's the opposites in the person that attracts us to people. That becomes a friction and the excitement of a relationship. And we find challenges in getting on with each other because we're different. And if you were different, these twins were certainly not identical. You've got Esau. And if his passage is described as an outdoor kind of guy, the epitome of health and manhood, we're told in this verse... The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. And Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country. It's like a Marlboro advert, isn't it? It's the kind of thing you can imagine, you know, there'd be a, someone smoking there and looking very tough and masculine, very hairy and, and rugged, you know, the outdoor world. He's, he is the outdoor type man. He is your idealised manhood. He's rough, he's hairy, and he loves the outdoors. He's wild at heart, intemperate, exciting. And so we're told later on in verse 28, Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. One of the tragedies in this story is the partisan views of the parents. One loves one son, one loves the other, and that's never good in any, any, any family. Even, even his name is more interesting than his brother, it seems. Esau literally means hairy. It's a kind of manly name, isn't it? Hairy. You know, it sounds like it, you know, it's the kind of name you want as a rugby player. You know, hairy. It sounds, it sounds really, really good. And then you come to the next character in this story. You come to Jacob. He was not so rough. And in fact, he's not mentioned how much hair. So you get the impression he's a bit of a smoothie. Okay, a bit of a, bit of a hairless person. Who didn't love the outdoors because we're told he prefers to live near the tents. We're told this, after this, his brother came out with his hand grasped with Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Rebecca loved Jacob. You know, it's what's interesting when you read the commentaries on this. There seems naturally to be a bias towards Esau. You know, he's a hairy, wild man. And everyone loves the, the wildness of this man, the bigness of the man. You know, and then... We look at Jacob, who comes out as a bit of a bit of a mummy's boy who likes to be at home, and actually is a bit of a bit of a cunning individual. And we get this idea that really warps the whole understanding of what's happening in this passage. Because actually, there's a lot here we can't see. You need to really look beneath the surface to see what's going on. Because Jacob's name is also very interesting. And what's fascinating is because we know from the New Testament that Jacob also can mean supplanter or the deceiver, we think Jacob is actually quite a nasty name. Why would you call your child deceiver or supplanter? It's not the kind of name, you know, call your newborn baby trickster. You know, I don't know, it just sounds a strange thing. To, but they didn't call their, name, their newborn baby by a bad name. Jacob, Jacobus, in Hebrew, is quite a very interesting name. It literally means hill catcher because it reflects the fact he was trying to grasp his father, brother's son, uh, brother's hill, as if he's trying to pull his brother back into the, back into the womb so he could get out first. It's, but actually, it, what it means, quite literally in the Hebrew language, is that it's a parental prayer. 
Quite literally, it means, may he be at the hills in Hebrew. May God be at the hills. It's literally praying a prayer, but God will be at the hills of this baby boy to protect him. In other words, literally in a modern language, it would be like, may God have his back. That's literally what it means in the Hebrew. It's a prayer. It's a loving name, Jacob. May God get his back. May God always be there protecting this child. That's what this name means. It's quite a beautiful name. And yet when we come to look at the story and the struggle between these men, we see that both of them don't only struggle with life, they cause many of their own problems. And the first thing you see in this is not simply that, Isaac, uh, that Jacob preferred to live among the tents. We see that the senses are exaggerated. Esau is not simply a wild man, he's an unwise man. He's a person who lives by impulse and desire. He is a prophet for the 21st century man. He really is. We're told in verse 30, once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that stew. I'm famished. And I'm sure you've all, all of you have come home at time and said to your partner or your friend or whatever, I'm famished. I'm starving. I need some food. And of course, we're not literally starving. We're just really, really hungry. We may have had a tough day at work. We may have done some exercise or something. We're so really, really hungry. But Esau takes this to the next level. He says, look, I'm about to die. Are you really, Esau? You're about to pop your cocks because you haven't had food. You've managed to walk all the way in from the country to get here, and suddenly you're going to die in front of this pot of red stew. Really? No. You see, what's been said here is Esau can't see beyond his hunger. He's literally stuck in the moment of his desires. People now say, live in the moment. That's what people say nowadays, don't they? Live in the moment. But live in the moment can be absolutely disastrous. Because if you live in the moment, you may find that moment may overcome you and overcome your relationships and break your relationships. And that's exactly what happens here. He is the epitome of the intemperate person. For all of us live in, uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a world where we're driven by our senses. But if we allow our senses to overwhelm us, we lose our logic and our ability to reason. He is a man who becomes intemperate. Isaiah writes this in Isaiah 23. He says, let us eat and drink, for you say, for tomorrow we die. That is Esau. He's saying, what's the point of my birthright? I'm about to die anyway, so of course you can have my birthright. It doesn't matter. How many marriages have been destroyed because one or other of the, of the marriage has gone to bed with someone else because they're living by their hunger, by their passion. It doesn't matter the consequences. I'm living in the moment. This is what's really important to me now. It doesn't matter if it's going to destroy my family. It doesn't matter if it's going to destroy my children. It doesn't matter if it's going to cause so much suffering. As long as I'm happy in this moment, as long as I sate my hunger, that's Esau. Senses exaggerated and becomes destructive. And then we see values warped. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have someone that read to you, I'm famished. And Jacob replied, um, sorry, first sell me your birthright. <laughs> Both boys are bad in this. We see here Jacob lacking the normal compassion for a sibling, for his brother. Give him a bowl of stew for goodness sake, he's just coming from the fields. What's the big deal? But, oh no, Jacob's a cunning man. He sees the opportunity to get a bargain, to get a deal. And he says, well, okay, Esau, first give me your birthright. And the crazy thing is, is that Esau agrees. Both boys 
had warped values. The birthright gave you both um, double the inheritance and it made you the tribal chief. And in the terms of, of Isaac, you know, he inherited his father's estate. When, when um, Esau was to inherit his, his father's estate, it was a massive estate. He will be a tribal chief. It was such a ludicrous situation for him to agree with. And what happens because of that? Relationships are damaged. And later on in Genesis we read that both of them parted and went on their way. But don't have this picture that some people believe that Esau was done out of his inheritance. The question is, is the story unfair? Well, the story is not unfair. Unfortunately, some views have been biased because of some poor translations. And sorry if any of you who are great fans of King James Version. The King James Version is 400 years old, and it doesn't always do the Hebrew justice. And this is a classic case here, because it says here, the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob was a plain man. Both those words, cunning and plain, are not the best translations. But what is interesting is that this, this, this translation here from the King James does point out to this, that Esau was a gamer playboy. He's not the innocent man. What Esau is doing is evading his responsibility as the oldest son. You see, he went out hunting every day to get meat. And what was his father? His father was a shepherd. All around his tents were hundreds if not thousands of sheep. There was meat to be gained every day. He didn't need to go hunting for it. He used to go out there and you could get a sheep. There was no need for uh, for Esau to do what he was doing. But he was playing. He was playing with life. He wanted the challenge of hunting. He wanted to be out there to provide venison. And because um, Isaac liked liked, liked venison, he got his father's permission to be a playboy. He wasn't maintaining his father's business. He was was wasting his life playing games, being a hunter. And what's interesting is that um, when he uses the word cunning, often Jacob gets uh, uh, accused of being the cunning one. Both of them were cunning. But one uses cunning in the tents, and one used it out in the open fields. Esau was wasting his life. He wasn't serving his family. And that's why he gets censored time and time again in the New Testament. See that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son, Hebrews 12, verse 16. We're told in verse 34, Esau despised his birthright. In other words, literally, he acted despicably. And then later on in Malachi, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Esau was irreligious, had no view of the sacred, didn't have any view of what was proper in life. And he gave it away for a bottle for, uh, for um, a bowl of pottage. What was interesting is his name then became Edom. And Edom meant red. And everyone thinks when, they, when, he, when he was named Edom because it meant red, it was a reference to his hair. It wasn't a reference to his hair. It was a reference to his reckless behaviour because he sold his inheritance for a bowl of red broth. His nickname pointed to that stupidity when he was a young man, Edom, red and Jacob, what was Jacob? Well, Jacob was a thinker homeboy. And we're told in King James Version he was a plain man, and that's a bad translation there of the Hebrew. Of the, Hebrew. the um, RSV doesn't do any better. Um, but the, actually, literally, the word there is the word tam in, in Hebrew. And actually, what it refers to is perfect or complete. 
even can mean mature as well. It's actually used in here in Job 1.8 when it says, Then the Lord says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless. That's the word tam in the Hebrew. And upright. A man who fears God and shuns evil. It doesn't say that Job was plain. And the, the NIV translated it as content, which is a much better translation of tam than plain. Jacob wasn't like es- Esau. He was a man of responsibilities. He took his responsibilities as a son in, uh, very, very seriously. And that's why he was content, as, he, as NIV says, to stay at home among the tents. Where, Esau let himself, where Jacob let himself down was that he was a schemer. And he knew that his mother had already told him that he was going to get the inheritance of his father. And like Sarah, he tried to pragmatically instigate it happening. That's where he went wrong. He should have allowed God to give him the gift rather than seek to take it by force in the way he does. And as a consequence, it causes a great rift between him and Esau. And both men later on, as you read in Genesis, part ways. And it takes many years before those brothers come back together. So what does this teach us? It teaches us us this. But in the struggle for life, we need to learn to be content. But more than that, we need to learn to struggle in prayer in the struggle of life. We need to look at this patriarchal family and realise their imperfection should give us encouragement. I love reading, reading the Bible because when you read about the disciples and you read about some of the Old Testament people that God uses, you realise that God doesn't use perfect people because they don't exist. Do you know who God uses? You and me. Isn't that an encouragement? Even if we should have this on our backs as Christians. A work under progress. remember some years ago in Spring Harvest, many years ago, about 20-odd uh, years ago, and we, Fiona and I were there, and they, they had a T-shirt at Spring Harvest, which had on the back, you know, um, forgive me, um, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not perfect in effect, you know, I should have bought that T-shirt and carry it on wearing it. We are a work in progress. And Esau and Jacob were a work in progress. Isaac and Rebecca are a work in progress. But they had to learn to struggle with the struggles of life through prayer. And that's how we too grow as Christians.